the Bible, we read that God commands us to be holy. But we wonder, how is that going to happen? In fact, what does it even really mean to be holy? Is it the same thing as being moral or religious? Leviticus is a book that is all about holiness. So let's open it up together and see what it has to teach us about what it means to be holy and what it's going to take for holiness to become a reality in our lives. What do you want to be when you grow up? We like to ask little children. And they give us the name of a profession that seems interesting or exciting. What are you studying? We ask those same kids when they go off to college. And they tell us their major, and we comment on what we've observed about that profession. However, if you ask most mothers what they want for their child, they likely won't name a particular profession or pursuit. More likely, they will say, I don't really care what he does, I just want him to be happy. Imagine though, a little child saying, when I grow up, I want to be holy. Or imagine a college student saying, I'm studying holiness because I want to live a holy life. Imagine mom saying, I don't really care what she does, I just want her to be holy. Sounds a little strange to us, doesn't it? Perhaps that's because we don't see holiness as all that important or interesting. Or perhaps we don't really think it's possible. Yet if we were to ask God what he wants most for us, his children, surely he would say, as he has already said, be holy for I am holy. For most of us, there's a part of us that wants to say in response to God, yeah, like that could happen. We want to tell God, I'm sorry, but you have set the bar too high. Couldn't you just settle for me being someone who's a really nice person, trying really hard to be good? Couldn't you just be like other parents who simply want me to be happy? Because I think I know how to pursue happiness. But holiness? I don't know about that. But God does not back down. God said to Moses, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Knowing that your father wants you to be holy, as he is, do you find within yourself any desire to be holy? Perhaps we need to ask ourselves, have I come to the place that more than merely being happy, what I really want is to be holy? Do I really believe that holiness is what will make me truly and eternally happy? If we're really interested in holiness, we're going to want to turn to the book of the Bible that is all about holiness. But it's a book most of us have likely avoided the book of Leviticus. Every year when we've had such good intentions of reading through the Bible, around mid-February when we get to Leviticus, we've started running out of steam. 
And let's be honest, we find Leviticus boring. Chapter after chapter of slaughter this and sacrifice that, wave this and wash that, eat this, don't eat that. Leviticus can seem redundant, remote, and frankly irrelevant. And it's also very bloody. Drain the blood, pour the blood, sprinkle the blood, which feels primitive to us. We don't sacrifice animals in the temple anymore, so when we read it, we want to ask the same question our kids ask when they're studying algebra. Do I really need to know this? How am I ever really going to use this in real life? The big picture message of Leviticus is this. God is holy. We hear that and we want to say, yeah, I get that. We hear one sermon on the holiness of God and think, what's next? Of course, this reveals that we have not yet begun to grasp the infinite holiness of God. The primary meaning of the word holy is separate. It comes from an ancient word that meant to cut or to separate. So to say that something is holy would mean that it is a cut above. So when the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is a cut above. In fact, so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. When we say that God is holy, we also mean that his character is unimpeachable, that he cannot be charged with wrong. Throughout the Bible, we read that God is not just holy, but that he is holy, holy, holy which means he is holy to an infinite degree. Now we're starting to see that grasping the holiness of God is not going to be as simple as we might have thought. It might help us to do a quick review of where we've been thus far in Scripture, which has brought us to this revelation of God's holiness in Leviticus. In Exodus, we witnessed God deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt for the very purpose that they might worship him and become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He made it clear to the Israelites that he would be their God and they would be his people separated from evil and sin and devoted to him. And because he did not want this to be a long distance relationship, he instructed his people to build a tent in which he would live in the center of their camp. At the very end of Exodus, we read that the very presence of God descended to dwell in that tent. He who is infinitely holy came down to live among people who were not holy. The book of Leviticus picks up where Exodus left off, saying in Leviticus 1.1 that the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. What God said to Moses became the content of the book of Leviticus and provided, in practical terms, a user's manual for the tabernacle so that the people of God would know how to approach God and interact with him. God had come to dwell amongst his people and he wanted them to know him by entering into an experiential understanding of his holiness. For God's people to really get God, will require more than simply giving them the information. I, the Lord your God, am holy. To 
to really know God is going to require that the reality of His holiness become a part of every aspect of their lives. Everywhere they turn and everything they do will need to serve as a lesson on God's infinite holiness. At the same time, they're going to need to see God's holiness in stark contrast to their sinfulness. And once again, they need more than simply to be told that they are sinful. They need the reality of their sinfulness to become unavoidable and undeniable. They need to experience it in a way that will engage all of their senses and their entire schedule. Perhaps as they understand the holiness of God and their own sinfulness, they will see their need for a savior who will save them from their sins and make them acceptable to their holy God. That is the essence of the book of Leviticus. Lesson number one on God's holiness and the people's sinfulness was delivered in the form of instructions for offering sacrifices at the tabernacle. Now today, when we say that something was a real sacrifice, rarely do we mean that blood was shed. For us, sacrifice means giving something up or taking something on that costs us a little money or comfort or convenience. Sacrifice in the Bible, however, is the bloody reality of a bellowing animal being butchered on an altar. Now imagine the sensory overload of this experience, the violent resistance of the animal, the spurting of blood, the feel of pulling the animal apart, the smell of its burning flesh and bones. Imagine the emotional and spiritual impact of offering this sacrifice, knowing that it was your sin that made this death necessary. And imagine the frustration in knowing that you'll be back again tomorrow or next week because you will sin again. In Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, we find detailed instructions for offering sacrifice, five regular offerings that will invade all of the Israelites' senses, informing their minds and engaging their hearts in regard to the seriousness of sin as well as the possibility and provision of a substitute. Why should we study the details of the, these various sacrifices in Leviticus, since we're no longer required to offer sacrifices? We should do so because they help us to understand how the work of Christ saves people like us from our sin. Each of the sacrifices points to a different aspect of Christ's sacrifice of himself. The burnt offering was the most important sacrifice at most Israelite festivals and was offered once every morning and once every evening. Bringing the burnt offering was a very personal experience intended most certainly to make an impression on the Israelite offering his sacrifice. Look in Leviticus 1 verses 4 and 5. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is the entrance of the tent of meeting. To make atonement for his sin and to gain God's acceptance, the offerer, 
identified himself with the animal by laying his hand on the animal's head. And when the animal died, it died for the offerer's sins. Neither the offerer nor the priest ate any of the meat. It was all burned in the fire. This was sacrificing its purest form, a valuable animal given up wholly to God. Along with the burnt offering, offered twice each day, was the grain offering of fine flour, oil, frankincense, and salt, which expressed gratitude to God and served as a way of asking the Lord to remember the offerer with favor. The fellowship or peace offering was more than a sacrifice. It was a festive meal. A bull, sheep, or goat was shared by the Lord, the priests, and the one who offered it. In fact, the worshiper was allowed to bring family and friends along to spend a couple of days enjoying the meat in the presence of God at the tabernacle. The act of the offering reminded the worshiper that the only way he had been able to come back into the fullness and joy of fellowship and communion with God was through the blood of a perfect substitutionary sacrifice. Sin pollutes and corrupts. And the sin offering was offered to cleanse away the filth of sin. In this offering, something unusual was done with the blood. Turn to Leviticus 4, beginning in verse 6. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. By using the blood of the animal in this way, God was demonstrating in dramatic fashion that it was the blood of the animal that atoned for Israel's sin. The blood cleansed the tabernacle, the priests, the people, and the land from the defilement caused by the sin of the people. There was blood on the veil, blood on the horns of the altar, and blood poured out. Everywhere the sinner looked was an unavoidable statement about the pervasive nature of sin and need for atonement. The guilt offering asked for something beyond sacrifice. It required restitution. The guilty person had to confess his sins publicly, offer the blood sacrifice, and also make full restitution of what was defrauded adding an additional 20%. So rather than a cheap or easy repentance, this dearly costs the person who sinned. None of the animals offered in these sacrifices could in themselves take away a person's sin or truly pay the debt for sin. But by offering these sacrifices in faith, the people of the Old Testament demonstrated their faith in Christ, the superior once-for-all sacrifice the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Leviticus taught the Israelites that God can be approached with the blood of a worthy substitute. And while all of these sacrifices might seem like an unbearable burden to us, wouldn't you be relieved as an Israelite to know that instead of paying the penalty for sin yourself, that God would accept a substitute in your place? Yes, there was certainly a cost to these sacrifices. Imagine the expense of taking the best animal in your herd down to the temple in Jerusalem 
just to be burnt up. That was the animal that would have produced the best offspring, and it wasn't easy to give up. Imagine the time burden, especially if you didn't live in Jerusalem. You would have to travel and find a place to stay. Imagine the emotional or spiritual burden as you made this trek knowing that you would have to identify and confess your sin to the priest in offering your sacrifice. But also imagine having the burden rolling away. When you slit that animal's throat and watched it burn and the priest declared your sin forgiven, imagine the sense of relief you felt. You would think, it should be me. I'm the one who deserves to die. But this innocent animal has become my substitute. This animal has died so I can live. This was good news. If you were an ancient Israelite, Leviticus would have helped you to understand how the death penalty you deserve for your sin could be dealt with by a substitutionary sacrifice. It would also have helped you to grasp how God would make it possible for the Israelites as sinful people to approach a holy God and to be made holy like he is. To impress this upon his people, God set up a system of symbols so that everything in their ordinary lives was classified into one of three categories. Holy, clean, or unclean. But to grasp what God was intending to teach, we have to understand that Leviticus uses the language of clean and unclean differently than we do today. When we use these terms, we're usually talking about health or hygiene, about whether something is dirty and germ-infested or free of such contaminants. When our hands are clean, we don't want to dig around into the trash can to get something out because we don't want to get them dirty. Or when we're covered with dirt from working in the yard, we don't want to sit on the couch and get it dirty. But in Leviticus, rather than referring to health or hygiene, holy, clean, and unclean refer to ritual states or categories. What makes these categories hard for us to grasp is that many of the laws presented in Leviticus concerning cleanness and uncleanness don't offer any kind of explicit rationale for why something or someone is clean or unclean. But the big picture story of the Bible can help us to make some sense of this. When we set the clean and unclean laws in the big story of the Bible, that God created everything clean and beautiful in the garden, that Adam and Eve's sin ruined that perfection, that Christ took the curse and uncleanness of the world upon himself, and that the day is coming when all of creation will be purified and made whole? What may have seemed random or ridiculous or even cruel becomes purposeful and powerful and precious. The laws for clean and unclean begin in Leviticus 11 with what might seem at first like a random designation of animals that were unclean, animals that were clean, and animals that could be sacrificed or holy. The unclean animals were those that came into contact with carcasses. And therefore, just as contact with a dead body made a person unclean, this contact by animals made these animals unclean, according to the law. 
The clean animals were those that chew the cud or were vegetarian, which is what all animals were in the Garden of Eden. In chapter 12, we discover that a woman was unclean for a number of weeks after she had a baby, which is a very bloody experience. In chapter 13, we're told that chronic skin diseases, the kind of diseases that aren't temporary but indicate something is wrong systemically, made one unclean. Similarly, in chapter 14, we find that mold and mildew exhibited in the walls of a house made a house unclean. And in chapter 15, we're told that any bodily discharge made a person temporarily unclean. Do you see a pattern here of disease, decay, and death? And do you see that all of these disorders provide a graphic demonstration of the effects of the curse on all of humanity and the entirety of creation? Disease and decay are a major feature of living in a fallen and cursed creation. By selecting certain examples of disease and decay and labeling them unclean, we learn that all disease, decay, and death is unacceptable to the one who created heaven and earth and pronounced it good. The living God sees all these intruders into his wonderful creation and reassures us through these laws that one day he will certainly drive these squatters out. Food laws didn't have to do with a healthy diet or food safety, and the isolation and washing of those with diseases didn't have to do with preventing the spread of infectious diseases. Leviticus is not an ancient guidebook for a healthy diet and disease prevention, though many people have tried to reduce it to that. Leviticus is a living picture of God's rejection of the effects of sin on humanity and creation and his intention to one day set everything right. Every day as you avoided what would make you unclean or dealt with what had made you unclean, it would be a reminder to you that the Lord had not forgotten how he made the world before human sin and that he will not forget his promise to make all things new. Everything designated as unclean pointed out the effects of the curse of sin on this world. Animals fed on other animals only after the curse. Childbirth became painful and bloody only after the curse. And sexual relations between men and women became infected with sinful passions only after the curse. Bodies bled and developed disease only after the curse. Children were born with birth defects only after the curse. Mold and mildew, the visible evidence of decay, came into being only after the curse. So these things were unclean. But God will not abandon our world to its uncleanness. He will make it clean. The way the world will become clean will be by the blood of a sacrifice sufficient enough to atone for the world's sin. Are you beginning to see that all the laws of Leviticus were a visual aid to present the gospel of Christ? And can you see what this system of symbols would have impressed upon you if you had lived every day working out its demands? 
Everything you ate, everything and everyone you touched, and everything you did had to be run through the grid of clean and unclean. You would have known that what is holy cannot and must not come in contact with what is unclean, which should have motivated you to reject the unclean lifestyle of the Canaanites around you. You would also have had hope, knowing that things that were unclean could become clean. A person with a skin disease or discharge could become clean by offering the appropriate sacrifice and ceremonial washing. The priest and the instruments he used in the tabernacle could be consecrated or be made holy to the Lord by the sprinkling of the blood of an acceptable sacrifice. And this would have made it possible for you to put your faith in the sacrifice to which all the animals slaughtered on Israelite altars pointed, believing that his blood would not only cleanse you, but make you holy and acceptable to God. By constantly calling the Israelites to ritual purity in all aspects of life, the Lord was reminding them of their need for seeking after moral purity in all aspects of life. He intended that they live in such a way that would set them apart from all the people around them who had no desire to reflect God's holy nature. They would be distinct, distinguishable, and different from the nations for the sake of the nations. Having this holy God as their God placed a claim on their lives that would make a difference in what they would and wouldn't do. Look in Leviticus chapter 20. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things. And therefore, I detest them. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. The Egyptians who had enslaved the Israelites lived lives that reflected the gods they worshipped. The Canaanites who surrounded the Israelites lived in accord with the gods they worshipped. And likewise, the one true God who is holy, 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 said to his people that their lives should reflect the innate quality of the God they serve. They should be uncontaminated by the ways of the world around them, unimpeachable in character, exquisite in beauty, and perfect in love like their God. And it's the same for us. Our lives should reflect the holiness of the God we serve. And so I have to ask you, does your belonging to Christ make a difference in what you will or will not do? Do you have a longing for holiness, for Christ-likeness that compels you to draw the line where those around you really have no lines? Where have you drawn the line in what you will let your eyes see and not see, what you will consume and reject. 
what you will walk away from and what you will walk toward. I'm not just talking about moral lines or setting yourself apart from the world. I'm also asking about your being set apart to the Lord. Does your longing to be holy to the Lord have any impact on your Saturday night and Sunday morning schedule so that you will be prepared body and soul to worship on the Lord's day? Does your willingness to be different mean that your Facebook updates and photos reflect an innate desire to know and be pleasing to God in a way that is quite different from that of your unbelieving friends? Or are your life and calendar, your priorities and passions really pretty much the same as those around you who do not belong to Christ, but maybe with a little church activity added in? If you belong to God through the saving work of Jesus Christ, are you being made holy by the ongoing sanctifying work of Christ through the Word of God? If you have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, are you now living a clean life? This is the very purpose for which God has poured out His grace on you, to empower you for your pursuit of holiness. Listen to what Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Leviticus showed the people of God what it was going to mean to live with a holy God in their midst and what it was going to take to be able to approach him. But while Leviticus provided a good start, it didn't provide the whole picture. The only reason we do not have to keep every detail of the God-given revelation of the book of Leviticus is not that we live in a modern world and that was a primitive age. It's that what Jesus Christ has done is so breathtakingly superior and sufficient that these regulations have become unnecessary. Our pursuit of holiness centers not on what we touch or what we eat, but on whom we are resting for our righteousness. But we must read and understand Leviticus, even though we're not required to follow all of its regulations, because the more we understand about what Christ has replaced, surpassed, and fulfilled, the deeper and sweeter our love for worship of him becomes. Every sacrifice and sanctification law in Leviticus reveals to us the beauty of Christ from yet another perspective. The people of the Old Testament looked forward to one who would be completely holy in a way they never could be, which is why so much excitement surrounded that day when, as Luke recounts it, 
the angel announced to the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The Holy One of God entered into the filth of this world in order that he might offer himself as a sacrifice for sin to shed his blood so that we might become fully and finally clean. Jesus was God's provision of a sacrifice that put an end to the need for all the sacrifice prescribed in Leviticus. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's not that a sacrifice for our sin is no longer required. It's that the sacrifice of Christ is good enough, perfect enough to cover your sin and my sin and the sin of all who will put their faith in the sufficiency of his once for all sacrifice. Jesus was the pleasing aroma in the nostrils of his father. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ's sacrifice was pleasing to the Lord because it was a tangible, unmistakable, worldwide demonstration of the sacrificial way in which God loves sinners. Jesus was our substitute. Just as the people of God put their hands on the head of the bull or sheep and their sins were transferred to that innocent animal, so when by faith we lay hold of Christ, our guilt is transferred to him, our substitute. Jesus alone is our promise of cleansing. Jesus, the ultimate clean thing, was continually touching unclean things. Perhaps this is exactly what Mark wants us to see in chapter 5 of his gospel, where we read about Jesus touching unclean upon unclean things. First, a man with an unclean spirit who lived among the dead near a herd of pigs and cut himself. This man was exponentially unclean. And what did Jesus do? He cleansed him so that when the people came out to see him, he was clothed and in his right mind. Next in that chapter is a woman who's had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And she comes up behind Jesus in a crowd and touched his clothing. And when he asked who had touched him, Mark tells us that she came in fear and trembling. She was afraid because she had made Jesus ceremonially unclean just by her touch. But Jesus recognized this for what it was, reaching out to take hold of the health and wholeness found only in him. In other words, faith. In the same chapter, Mark tells us that Jesus went to the home of the ruler of the synagogue. This is someone in charge of enforcing the rigid, clean, and unclean laws of his day. And when he got there, people were weeping and wailing loudly because the synagogue ruler's daughter was dead. And Jesus took the girl by her hand, touching this dead body, which made him ceremonially unclean, and infused her with his own resurrection life. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus reaches out to touch lepers and make them clean. And each one 
shows us a picture of the way Jesus makes sinners clean. He reaches out to touch us, taking upon himself our sin sickness and uncleanness, imparting to us his health, wholeness, and acceptance. We are cleansed because the Holy One of God became unclean for us. Finally, Jesus is our only hope for dealing with the disparity of our conduct. The entire law is still applicable because the entire law reflects God's unchanging character. Nevertheless, the way in which we are to obey the law has changed significantly due to the coming of Christ. The sacrificial laws still apply because God still demands an adequate sacrifice for our sins. But we observe those laws today not by offering animals according to the Mosaic system, but by trusting Christ as our sufficient sacrifice. The clean and unclean laws still apply because God still demands that we be cleansed of all unrighteousness in order to be in his presence. But we observe those laws today not by going to the priest to be sprinkled with blood, but by going to our great high priest who showers us with the forgiveness he purchased for us at the cross. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus has freed us from following the regulations of Leviticus. It's not that he's thrown them out. Rather, he has fulfilled them in himself so that Leviticus no longer has mastery over those who come to him. And as you are joined to Christ, you find that your heart begins to beat with his very heartbeat, igniting in you a passion for personal holiness. You find yourself saying, when I grow up, I want to be holy. Because as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God.